Uh, so this final uh, session, uh, which for lack of a more imaginative title I've called Alcohol and Education. Um, Luke Flanagan is our first uh, speaker. Now Luke did his BA at Lincoln. Uh, he gained his PhD from uh, Edinburgh University. Uh, he uh, taught for a couple of years at Memorial University. Uh, and he's um, currently teaching business and politics at uh, Eastbourne College, as well as continuing with his own research, uh, much of which I think focuses on the First World War and Has that done, kind, yeah. of kind of period. Okay. Okay. It's been a while since I picked this up, so I'll see if I can remember what it's all about. Um, it's slowly dawning on me that stories about alcohol and Canadians in the First World War are kind of ten a penny. Um, so I try and make it, you know, try and I, what I try and do is um, I'm from a town called Bexhill-on-Sea, which is in between Hastings and Eastbourne on the East Sussex coast. I've published a couple of papers on Bexhill now looking at the kind of interaction between locals and Canadians and what also the presence of large numbers of Canadians in these kinds of towns can tell us about Canadians' um, development. I know Phil hates the colony to nation framework. You don't like this idea that it went from colony to nation, but it's in that kind of tradition of um, did it, can it help us understand how uh, Canada as a nation developed? So it's in that kind of tradition, really. So I'm looking at not just those kind of stories or those anecdotes about how you know, Canadians getting drunk and getting arrested, because there were plenty of those in Hastings as well. Um, it's just what it can actually tell us, and if we can situate it within a broader kind of understanding. And, and if, the, as was alluded to earlier on, whether the kind of restriction on alcohol in Canada, Canada obviously did and has got a lot more uh, stringent alcohol regulation than in the UK, whether that had some can help give us some understanding about why or um, what led the Canadians to behave in the way that they did in some of these towns. So um, I started by looking at things like convictions. There were, you know, convictions for drunkenness were quite high. So this kind of gives us some context of, of why um, these kind of countries were moving towards, um, towards restricting alcohol because it was having an effect on the, the, the justice system. Um, and um, they, they took steps to curtail it. So there's just some statistics from around the same time um, about how many convictions there were. So quite high um, in both countries. Um, so I don't need to go through all of this. It, it's kind of well known about, about kind of alcohol regulation in Britain, that it came about predominantly in kind of 1915, 1916. It was led by Lloyd George. The main kind of... Um, regulation was this idea of treating of buying rounds was prohibited but lots of this still kind of went on if you go to the newspapers and look at uh, how many people were uh, convicted of treating during this uh, this period it was still quite high so it was a way of um, improving performance if you like ensuring that people didn't get drunk and improving uh, improving performance and improving um, uh, morale as well if you like so um, it did have an effect. It did have an effect. Drunkenness arrests were down um, by two thirds by uh, 1917. So Canada's is it kind of follows, I suppose, the same model that we have today in Canada, where it's provincially led. So the uh, 1898 was a national referendum on it. Um, although the national referendum was in favour of um, of prohibition, 
Um, it produced a yes. They were reluctant to introduce it because of the French-Canadian dynamic. Um, Quebecers, there was a divide between opinions in uh, between English and French Canada. And so it was left, it was that old, well, we'll just leave it up to the provinces. So some provinces went in hard on it. Uh, PEI w was the first, but by, by the First World War, um, by 1918, uh, all provinces had introduced uh, some form of prohibition. So it was a lot kind of stricter, it was moving down on a lot stricter path um, than was in Britain, where it was uh, outlawed in time. So just to give you some context, 1892, in terms of uh, consumption, obviously uh, Britain is far and away drinking more beer um, other than Belgium, but Canada's still, uh, still quite low, so this kind of gives a sense that Canada consumption wasn't necessarily as high than it was in Britain, but this does help us to understand uh, kind of availability of alcohol in Britain and why it may have been such a problem. Um, once all the Canadians came over. Um, so this just helps provide some context. When I'm thinking about Hastings, Hastings is a town now, um, I don't know how many it's got, in, uh, how many people it's got in, it must be about 100,000, maybe even more than that. But at this time it had 61,000. So I've just given you some other kind of uh, metropolitan centres, if you like, at that time, to give you some context as to um, the... the the kind of town that they were going into. It was a lot more populated than some, uh, some of these men knew. Um, and this, this line from Jonathan Vance in his book called Maple Leaf Empire, so he says that lots of these Canadians had come from small towns, small villages. So when they went into the British towns, it was, uh, it was kind of party central for them. There were lots more pubs, there were lots more people, there were women, obviously, that we've spoken about. Um, and so this was it, was, it was a novelty, uh, his argument is it was a novelty for some of these men to go into uh, populated uh, urban centres uh, like Hastings. Um, so yeah, Hastings not that much uh, smaller really than Ottawa at that time. Um, Hastings had some semblance of, of a temperance movement, of a, 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 an anti-alcohol sentiment, although it wasn't really very strong. There were a couple of mentions um, of it in the newspapers. Um, the Beer House Act, a, a bit like in Canada really, empowered local political powers, local jurisdictions to, to take the, um, the initiative on <coughs> restricting alcohol. So, but only five pubs in Hastings had closed by 1905. So it wasn't really having that much of an effect. And there was one pub for every 330 people. So there was, there was a lot of, of, of public houses uh, per head in Hastings by uh, 1928. So this really gives some context as to why this temptation was so evident for the Canadians, that there was, there was lots of people, lots of women as well, and lots of pubs in order to frequent. And we're not just talking about in Hastings as well. There was lots of of problems with taking, uh, with Canadians going out into the outlying villages, going out to the places like Rye and Winchelsea and all these kinds of places out in the peripheries, uh, where they're at, they're at kind of arm's length from uh, the authorities, if you like. Um, so one of the other things is, uh, with Bexhill as well, was that these weren't camps, these weren't enclosed camps. They were actually billeted right in the middle of the town centres. And, as I'll show you, they were actually spread out over quite a considerable geographic area that is not really walkable. So you had lots of men 
in a large town centre, and they, were, they found it very difficult to control. Um, so, going back to what we've discussed in, in various other papers, it was this idea that were the Canadians actually fully committed to the cause? Were they, um, and when I say Canadians, I mean those, those Canadian-born. So a letter went out in the Hastings and St. Leonard's Observer in 1914, which was dis describing this idea that everyone was flocking to enlist. You know, everyone's flocking to enlist under, um, with flag waving and everyone's waving them off. But there's actually a kind of undercurrent of, of suspicion that Canadian-born men weren't actually all that committed at all. So 70% uh, born in the United Kingdom, um, only 29%. Um, so only um, a small amount of, of Canadian-born males actually joined. And this was borne out in the, um, in the, local, uh, the local press as well, speaking about there's no such desire. So this was from a man who was from Hastings, but had now moved, I believe, to London, Ontario, and was saying, well, this idea that they're all flocking to enlist and they're all marching off and very patriotic, that's actually not the case. And that actually, it's really others, so mainly Englishmen, but there's actually French and German who are actually making up these numbers. The Canadians themselves, those Canadian-born men, are actually not putting themselves forward for uh, this kind of sacrifice. So that, that was the kind of early sentiment within Hastings, that, that there was a, an undercurrent of suspicion, really, that, that Canadians weren't as committed as what was being portrayed. Um, so this is these are just some generic kind of statistics of 54% uh, of the population, Canada's population was British born um, in 1940. Uh, so that just helps to give some understanding really of, um, of why so many British people or, or so many British born uh, joined up in the first place. So this is quite interesting. Um, this is something that Jonathan Vance makes quite a lot of... Uh, he makes quite a lot of in the sense of those British born, those British born Canadians who went, came back to the motherland, if you like, had a dear old aunt or had those family structures in place in which if they were plonked in a town like Hastings or in Devon or, or where else, they could go off to the old and, and draw upon those family structures and be kept out of trouble. They could go, they could have a bed for the night or they could have a um, a, a Christmas dinner. That, this is one thing that's in the local newspapers a lot. That at Christmas time, there's, there's um, adverts that say, "Please take in a Canadian because they've got nowhere else to go." So, as it moved towards being ma mainly Canadian-born, these structures uh, were no longer there. There were no longer these family structures in place. So, this again gave some context as to, to why alcohol became a bit of a problem. So um, the Canadians came November 1916, which was a, um, a few months before they arrived in Bexhill as well. Um, so they arrived in Hastings before they arrived in uh, the, the next town along Bexhill. So they were command depots. So the purpose was that they were rehabilitating after being injured, but they weren't so injured that they had to be in a convalescent hospital or that they were in some kind of medical facility. So they were, there was a different kind of grading structure as to, as to your, how injured you were. And these were in that, in that kind of no man's land of injured and too injured to go to the front, but not injured enough, uh, but they're not injured enough that they have to be in hospital. So um, 
they're in that kind of middle ground, really. So that was that was one thing that I kind of picked up that I thought was quite interesting. Um, so and I, I took these figures actually from the um, from the war diaries from Library and Archives Canada, and it, it what I, I I'm kind of struggling with how large these numbers are. Now I, I'm not trying to question their accuracy, but Jonathan Vance says that there were 160 Canadians in um, Britain during the First World War, which if you look at these kinds of figures, suggests that 10% of them were in Hastings. Now that seems like an awful lot, but these are the numbers I got from the, um, from the, the war diary. But what also it shows is that the number of officers to the number of troops was, was way off, and this was something that was made a lot of in the war diaries, that discipline is a considerable issue because there's just so many of these men over such a large area, and um, we can't really control them, so we need more officers, uh, please. And it obviously gradually went up. Uh, the ratio gradually went up towards... Uh, went up. So, yeah, so this is, this is a figure I got out of uh, Vance's book. So I've, I've put a question mark. So too many... It got to a point where there were so many Canadians in this kind of category that they couldn't go back to the front, but they weren't in hospital either that as soon as they reached a certain level of fitness, they said, please send them back to Canada. There's nothing we, really we can do for them. There's not really the economic means to support them here. So um, they'd be more, their skills would be more valuable in Canada. So uh, it was looked to, once they'd reached a certain point, to start sending them back. Um, so this is just, this is just the, the area in which they, they covered. It, it obviously doesn't mean a lot, but actually quite a, a large geographic area to cover on foot. Um, so there was a constant requests in the War Diaries, please can we have a motor car? Um, because we are really struggling to cover this area um, and uh, keep everybody in check. So I'll show you um, a contemporary map. So the three locations were here, here and here. So they kind of struggled to, to keep everybody in line in this kind of large area, and there, were, there was a request for a motor car um, regularly made, and they did um, actually get one in the end. All right, so this was drunkenness was obviously uh, it was obviously well uh, well known. So as soon as they came in, a, a document was issued that said no drunkenness. The beer in the UK is, is a lot stronger than that French stuff that you may be used to, so please just take it easy. Um, this came from the, the, the APM, I can't remember what it stands for now, but it's the, the kind of chief discipline officer. Drunkenness is the, is the principal concern that they have, that people are going off, they're taking uh, alcohol back to their billets, and they're also going um, to outlying villages as well. And the local population was seen as being complicit in this, in that they were treating them, treating the Canadians, taking them into their homes as well, and uh, plying them with alcohol. Uh, oh, it's been mentioned about crime. Crime was an issue as well. There, was, there were murders, uh, theft of things, jewellery, um, and all those kinds of things as well. That, uh, that, that was all going on um, alongside this as well. So, yeah, so... Urinating in the streets was a particular issue. This was raised in the, um, in the war diaries that, you know, it's, it's very difficult to stop them uh, urinating in the streets. And uh, there was a, a man, Private E. Ripley, charged with willful murder in, in January 1970. So 
all of the same kind of, of, of stories that were going on in some of the earlier papers were happening here in Hastings too. Um, so what I thought was interesting about this was, was how it's, it's that perception of the Canadians. Again, it was, um, it's, it's that it's not their fault, that it's actually the temptations of Hastings, it's the local people who are uh, responsible for them behaving in this way. We can't really blame them. So this was in a, you know, they're just as human as us Englishmen and susceptible to temptation. So it is, this editorial is trying to turn it around on the local population to say, look at what you're doing here. Don't give them that temptation. It's, it's not their fault. Any, anybody else in this situation would, uh, would be tempted to. So I thought that was quite an interesting context um, in what we were talking about earlier, about the perception of the Canadians. And the perception of them was high. There was the odd rogue voice. And, and in a paper I published about Bexhill uh, earlier this year, there are rogue voices about these aren't really Englishmen or they're not really uh, like us. But on the main, in the main, the, the general opinion of them was very high. Um, so there's this idea that I, I was, I've kind of picked up and that was, that was demonstrated by lots of Canadians within who wrote into the Observer that actually um, it, it's not their fault and that they are the ones who are ha kind of occupy the moral high ground. That Canada, because it instigated prohibition, because it brought in stricter alcohol measures, kind of has that, has that moral high ground and is actually more socially developed, is more, um, is more uh, aware and interested in, in the social ramifications of this kind of context and cares more about it, its people and its soldiers than does Britain. And it's kind of Britain's kind of willful neglect here in refusing to do anything about um, prohibition as to why we're in this situation. So, um, dark page in the history, the day of reckoning, maybe more serious in the years to come. So it's kind of setting this up that your disregard for us, your, the fact that you are doing nothing about alcohol, the fact that the government is doing nothing about alcohol, is going to lead to a, 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 day, a stronger day of reckoning. Um, so, problem was, cultural attitudes in Britain, this prevented prohibition, uh, generous availability and like I was saying, those in positions of responsibility, those, the government and the local, it was a, that kind of blame game going on. Who's responsible here for, um, for bringing about prohibition? The local council would say, well, we can't do anything, it's, it's for the government in London to do something. And so it, it's that kind of blame game that was happening. Um, so the Observer editorial, they didn't have much sympathy either for uh, prohibition. Um, so there was, there was lots of kind of blame shifting going on. Who was responsible? It's their fault, it's their fault, it's their responsibility. Um, so again, this idea that Britain, it's the Canadians, they're inexperienced, they're not used to this situation and they are being, uh, they're being led astray. It's British culture. British culture is kind of negligent, leading these poor boys to pass through a fiery furnace. So there's, there's kind of, uh, this time there's a kind of undercurrent bubbling that it's the British fault, uh, British uh, 
people, British governments felt that, that this, these contexts, uh, these situations allowed to occur. So, again, uh, this, this really tra- uh, rebuts that, that uh, the contention of Jonathan Vance here, that actually, rather than being from kind of these wild country districts, rather than being uh, kind of men, rugged men um, from the forest, if you like, which was depicted in some newspapers, they were actually quite worldly. And that proximity to the United States meant that a lot of them had actually spent time in, in the US before coming to Britain. So they weren't actually uh, as, as green behind the ears as what some of them made out. And a lot of them were from Toronto and Montreal, where um, the population was actually quite large, considerably larger than some of the towns that they were going to. So it was trying to rebut this idea that they were actually inexperienced um, and that they were... Um, I will. I won't go go through all this, but um, a lot of it is um, the response of this Canadian soldier is, is is really about that Britain or England isn't taking the taking the steps that it needs to, and that Canada has taken these steps, and that, that Canada has that kind of moral high ground um, because, and the U.S. as well, uh, because they took those steps to uh, limit alcohol in the way um, that Britain is, is refusing to do or is, is not doing. So again, it's talking about the kind of awakening, uh, the awakening, if, if the, this drink issue is not solved, is not settled, then the, the real kind of awakening is, is, is coming. All right, so um, just some conclusions then. Um, it was negative, it was a, a wholly negative thing the the relationship between Canadian soldiers and alcohol and um, but this context of, of what to do about it was what was what dominated uh, the discussion pages and um, there was a clear sense amongst some that, that prohibition and limiting the availability of alcohol was the way to go but it, that it was Britain that was was the one that was negligent but I kind of think there's a, a divergence here in mindset between Britain and Canada, but some are saying actually Canada is the one here that is more socially, more culturally developed because it's willing to take these rather than uh, the mother country which is, is doing it how it's always been. So there's there some of the con- conclusions that I, I, brought, um, I brought out from this. So, and place in the empire, this idea of awakening, Canada's awakening is going to come. It, it is making me wonder whether, whether that's where, where it's heading. It's saying that Canada you know, no longer needs Britain. If Britain is going to be negligent in this kind of way, and that um, the, the, the kind of place in the, the empire is, is being questioned. So I think there is more to the, the alcohol narrative than just drunk soldiers being arrested. There is something else uh, that can be made of it as well. Okay, I'll leave it there. Did you open your PowerPoint up? Is it just a normal button? Um, it's, it's on the um, desktop. Oh, 
desktop somewhere. Yeah. So just, we'll just close that down, yeah. Yeah. Just click down the same. So here. If you're here, this is us. Yes. So yours? Yes. Yeah. So how do I get it? Is it that um, one there? That one? Yeah, there you go. Okay. Oh, I'll just give you a brief introduction for you. Okay. Okay, so um, Diana Burfrey and uh, Adrian Watkinson, I've known uh, as uh, uh, friends and a former student for many years. Um, Diana was at Canterbury Christchurch when I, I taught there. She did uh, a BA in American Studies, did it very well as a mature student. And one was one of the few students in in the 20 years or so that I was there um, who uh, wanted to specialise in Canada rather than the USA. Uh, we we had a Canadian course. Uh, she not only did that, or a US Canadian course, Uneasy Neighbours, uh, but she also did her um, dissertation on on uh, a Canada-related topic. <coughs> in the First World War, um, and she and Adrian um, have uh, together and individually written various articles and papers uh, since then. What they're best known for, though, uh, is the um, project called Far From Home, uh, which has seen them over the last 12 years um, uh, undertake a project memorialising uh, 3, 000, about 3,900 Canadian casualties uh, or, or deaths uh, of soldiers uh, in the Great War buried in the UK. Uh, and as I say, it's been a 12-year project which has taken them literally all over the United Kingdom, many, uh, many different trips from literally Land's End to John O'Groats and beyond. Um, and for which they have just this very uh, year, I think it's in April. April time, yes. Uh, April, uh, invited over to Ottawa to receive the uh, both of them the uh, MSM, the Meritorious Service Mo uh, Medal, from the Governor General mm. uh, for services to Canada and Canadians. Hence the uh, MSM uh, after their names. They're not actually talking about that uh, <laughs> now, but I'm sure they'd be happy to about it later. Uh, they're now uh, talking about the Kharkiv University, which is one of the outgrowths of their research. So over to you. Thank you very much. I would just like to thank you for arranging the day today in the conference and the UCL for the hospitality that we've received today. Thank really appreciate it. Thank you. <coughs> okay, the British army had recognised the value of basic education for serving soldiers during the mid-19th century. In July 1845, the Corps of Army Schoolmasters was created and offered lessons at an elementary level for reading and arithmetic. It was felt these skills would help soldiers to obtain employment after their military service had ended. Unsurprisingly, there were resistance from some senior officers believing that with greater self-confidence, Education might encourage serving men to question their superiors. The Carpe University of Canada developed through the often conflicting visions of the chaplain service and the YMCA between 1917 and 1919. The Canadian chaplain service and the YMCA provided entertainment facilities, canteens and home comforts in training camps. 
Whilst the YMCA had substantial funds, the chaplains often paid out of their own pockets. In 1915, the service was granted official status as a unit of the CEF, permitting the chaplains to follow their men to the front. Professor Edmund Oliver, principal of a theological college at the University of Saskatchewan, enlisted during September 1916. Two months later, Oliver sailed to England. Soon after arrival and at his own expense, he set up a reading area and an entertainment hut. He wrote home to his wife that he was spending what money he could afford for current magazines, several dailies, and about 500 books. He added that 150 were out on loan that particular day, and that he had also furnished a large amount of stationery. As the war dragged on, with so many soldiers returning to Canada sick or wounded, the question arose as to what sort of future lay ahead for them and all the other serving men after the war ended. Hundreds of thousands of ex-soldiers would one day be demobbed and return home. But what was to become of them all as they attempted to resume their former civilian lives? Founded during 1844 in Great Britain, the YMCA grew into a huge international network of branches. Unlike all other branches of the organisation, the Canadian Y was a military unit from the outset of war. At home and abroad, it was under the control of the Canadian Army. The Y spared no effort or resources to help provide soldiers with a short respite whenever and wherever possible. At the front lines and trenches on the Western Front, it offered an oasis for rest home comforts and recreation which was especially valued by men who were away from home for the first time. There were Bible classes, sports facilities and other simple recreational activities, including help to write letters home. Its overriding concern was to combat boredom or inevitably troops getting into trouble with women and alcohol. By 1916, under the direction of Lieutenant Colonel Gerald Burks, the Y had identified a need for an educational program alongside its other activities. In order to fulfill demand, it worked in tandem with the chaplain service to provide books and talks for men who were on periods of leave, either from the front or rest camps in England. These educational sessions proved to be very popular, encouraging many capable officers and NCOs to deliver lectures. As Burks was involved with McGill and some English universities, he was able to use his influence to invite lecturers to tour the Canadian camps. As men began to request books to study, questions were asked if their educational achievements could somehow be carried over into academic credits after their return to civilian life. Secular lectures had also become an important part of the YMCA program with attempts to impart information on the historical causes, effects, and progress of the war. <coughs> it was through the organization of these lecture series and their great success that the idea for a more formal educational enterprise took shape. Burks was very keen to instigate a program of learning for Canadian soldiers with the YMCA pioneering an educational syllabus of lectures and study classes. He asked Dr. Henry Torrey, the principal of Alberta University, for his assistance. 
Previously, Tory had been at McGill and later involved in the creation of the University of British Columbia. Early in 1917, Tory agreed to assess the support for organising regular study courses for the CEF, leaving Canada for Europe in July that year. During his survey, Tory carried out extensive research. From 1,860 responses, over 70% indicated they were interested in an educational program. With such overwhelming support, it was recommended the program should start immediately. His special report on the discharged men from the Army, presented to the National Council of the Canadian YMCA, concluded, there is no doubt educational work would be a great benefit to the soldiers for efficiency and morale and preparing the men for when they resume the normal duties of life. Tory noted that men who had left higher education or intellectual, intellectual occupations were keen to, to re-establish links with their former lives when they eventually returned to Canada. It was believed who, men who had only been in the army for a short while would have no problem in resuming their former education or lives after demobilization. However, it would prove far more difficult for the long service men after a break of three or more years. Booklets were uh, produced. This one set out where the khaki colleges would be located in England. Eventually, there were 18 colleges with the network extending into Wales and Scotland. Battalion schools were catered for the needs of soldiers at elementary level, presenting a learning opportunity for those men who had received only minimal or no schooling at all. Where it was not practical to set up a centre, a correspondence department would be available to those soldiers who were in hospitals, at forestry camps or other remote areas. Another pamphlet detailed all the study courses for the first and second year at the different faculties. The aim of the project was to provide instruction for Canadian soldiers in all subjects other than those which formed part of their actual military training. The KU was prepared to carry out its work in every area where the CEF was stationed. Most importantly, the KU offered instruction of the most basic character for soldiers who could neither read nor write, alongside training in agriculture, commercial subjects, or science. Tory returned to Canada with a daunting task of raising financial support to provide a complete program spanning elementary education to graduation at university level. Canadian and British universities agreed to help by releasing teaching personnel. However, they were reluctant to get fully involved with the scheme until it had been officially recognised and had the full support of the Canadian government. Meanwhile, the majority of funding came from the YMCA, which enabled classes to be set up quickly in England and in France. Official recognition was slow to be granted. Although there was still no formal government decision, the KU attracted public Canadian public support and large amounts of money were donated. Tory agreed to become its president and took a sabbatical from the University of Alberta 
to enable him to concentrate wholly on the new venture. <coughs> Chaplain Edmund Oliver was a huge supporter of the new khaki innovation and the plan to formally educate soldiers. Oliver was asked to oversee a soldiers college in France, whilst Chaplain Clarence McKinnon was set up a similar establishment in England. A fledgling KU in France would offer all the elementary courses in secondary high school subjects, which could lead to matriculation. In essence, it was a blend of the agricultural high school and technical school concepts. Oliver, now a Lieutenant Colonel, was delighted to be the president of the new Carthy University based at the front line. The Battle of Vimy Ridge was considered to be one of the defining moments in the formation of Canada's identity. Victory came at a great cost, but also marked the first time that Canadian troops fought independently from British forces. To honour that success, Oliver's ex executive assistant, YMCA Captain William Gilmore, suggested the new venture be named the University of Vimy Ridge. Under Oliver's guidance, the UVR was to be as close as possible to the front lines and deliver classes for rotating battalions. It was determined that there would be three general levels of education, elementary, secondary, and a graduated step up to university entry level. Later, a fourth level was added for private or directed reading for advanced university students in liaison with their home universities. The UVR had huge logistical obstacles to overcome and lacked almost everything, staff, books, and classrooms. However, Gilmore was very resourceful and became renowned as a chief scrounger. Following a visit to England, Gilmore returned to France with 3,000 books, a typewriter, and stationery. With schoolrooms scattered miles apart, transportation was a huge problem. Staff were required to walk or hitch a ride before teaching soldier students in makeshift dugouts or tents. Early on, a bicycle was Oliver's only means of transport. Later, it was traded for a motorcycle and a sidecar. As news about the university spread through the ranks, there was an overwhelming response to join the classes. Within a month, Oliver's enthusiasm was rewarded when he reported that last week our attendance in classes was 3,913, at lectures 6,390, and books loaned 4,412. However, all was not well between Oliver and Tory as they disagreed over the jurisdiction and authority of the two universities. Tory stated that the UVR was an integral part of his Carpe University in England. Oliver emphatically declared the France-based organisation was independent, being entirely due to his efforts and his teams. Oliver also felt that Tory was unable to comprehend the difference between running a battlefield university at the front and the relative security of conducting a similar educational organisation in England. The UVR had to be prepared to advance or retreat with the ebb and flow of conflict. Whenever or wherever it found itself, 
the UPR needed to quickly set up in constantly changing locations, usually with very limited resources and inadequate facilities. Oliver's position was strengthened by opinions put forward at a conference in June 1918, attended by Commander Sir Arthur Curry and Sir Robert Borden, along with other important personalities. The conference confirmed that Tory would be director of the Carthage University in England, but that the university in France would be independent. The German army launched a major military offensive on the 21st of March 1918 against the British Fifth Army near Amiens. The UVR continued its work, but warned attendees to have their rifles oiled and bayonets sharpened. Seven students were killed and ten wounded by a shell in one incident. Eventually, it was forced to shut down for a while in early April, when every man was needed to strengthen Allied resistance. After a two-month hiatus, the UVR reported around 3,000 students by the end of June. One particularly contentious issue between Oliver and Tory was the basic concept and aims of the KU. In his 2002 paper, Tim Cook writes that the chaplains believed the mission was to the masses and not to an elite minority who would be taught to question rather than accept spiritual guidance from their Bibles. They also believed the majority of resources should be aimed at teaching soldiers at lower levels with basic reading, arithmetic and writing, especially composing letters. 3,000 men learned to read and write. For those soldiers, it gave them their first opportunity to send a letter home to their families, establishing a newfound freedom and independence. In March 1918, Oliver wrote to Tory, we are aiming to meet the needs of the mass of the men rather than to compete with your classical universities in Canada. By extension, classes for agriculture and other practical subjects would qualify men for this work after demobilisation. Although Tory agreed with the concept of mass education, he also felt there was a strong case for including courses to university degree level for more capable students. The YMCA supported his viewpoint in order to secure ongoing and vital cooperation of universities in England and Canada who had provided the scheme with lecturers. Chaplain Clarence McKinnon continued to publicly criticise Tory. Eventually he left England and went to work alongside Oliver in France. Their shared objective was to ensure the UVR was ready for its perceived role to provide classes at the lower levels in the post-armistice months. The relationship between the chaplains and Tory continued to deteriorate. The chaplains had always believed this educational scheme should be under their control. Tory had the firm support of the YMCA, which was also in power struggle with the chaplains over the salvation of souls. The YMCA urged Tory to hold his ground, and with their support, was able to brush aside the Padre's objections and solidify his position with the military officers. The chaplains continued to feel aggrieved and resented the YMCA for its support of Tory. 
The KU was finally given official approval in September 1918 with the issue of an order in council which bestowed full authorization for the Carpe University of Canada. The Borden government provided no direct funding, although the overseas military was ordered to transfer some 240 officers and ranks to act as full-time instructors. The KU had structured its academic year into two semesters, to run from October 1918 to January 19, then from February to May 1919. The booklets produced for students cover the different aspects of how each course would evolve. Here we show a selection from raising dairy animals with milk production. The pamphlets on commerce dealing with basic bookkeeping, shorthand and banking, all skills that the men would, could need as employees or in the running of their own business. Agriculture was also a very popular course teaching men how to understand and care for the soil for vegetable growing, an occupation many had left when they enlisted. The practical science syllabus spanned such topics as electricity and magnetism, wireless telegraphy, surveying, and petrol and steam engines. Mechanics was a very popular subject and had large numbers of men flocking to the classes. The KU was an ideal medium for offering classes for women in England, including laundry, cooking, and home economics. Whether wives of soldiers or those who were seeking to move to Canada, learning how to, learning how to run a farm or household would be a good basis for contributing to a post-war country. Significantly, this education experiment was also considered to be an important foundation towards forging a new and stronger Canada as an independent nation. Politicians and military commanders alike were very aware that the revolutions in Russia might have significant consequences. There was widespread disquiet that communist propaganda might influence the minds of Canadian soldiers. It was felt the troops could rise up against the ruling classes and mirror what was happening in Russia. In an effort to counteract the possible impact, special lectures were delivered, setting out the dangers of radical thought. The cessation of fighting in November 1918 changed soldiers' lives at the stroke of a pen. There was no longer a need for the constant training and other military activities which had been a major part of their daily routine. They now had much more time on their hands. When days were short, and outweighed by long hours of darkness. Because a vacuum could potentially be filled with boredom and bad behavior, it was hoped that the KU would encourage more men to attend courses. But inevitably, everyone's thoughts turned to how soon they would be going home to Canada. In England, better conditions in the military camps and other institutions enabled the KU to offer a substantially larger number of courses. Every course completed successfully was accredited by the Carpe University, which stated, at the, at the conclusion of any course, a successful candidate will be awarded a certificate, which will be an official recognition of the work he has done. This certificate is for Private Philip Earl Terry, born September 
7th, sorry, born the 7th of November 1897 and attested on the 23rd of April 1918, stating that he was a school teacher. Aged 22, he was posted to the CFA 1st Tank Battalion, then the Toronto University Overseas Training Company. During his service, he attended and taught courses through the KU and was ordered this certificate. Awarded this certificate. The KU launched the first weekly edition of the Beaver on the 14th of December 1918. Following a similar format to the much loved wartime trench newspapers, it set out to be a live weekly for Canadians in khaki dealing with demobilisation and reconstruction. Published in London, its main function was to channel information to the troops. Later, the KU set up a Bureau of Information to publicise details about various government plans. Each edition of Beaver featured articles of concern to all soldiers, demobilisation, repatriation, citizenship and land settlement, as well as useful guidance for farming students. In the first issue, Joy's full-paid article, The Birth of a University, set out how to and why the Khaki University had come into being. The last page of each issue had an amusing, amusing comic strip featuring characters Mick and Mac, often with a pointed message relevant to the men. For instance, issue 8, dated the 1st of February 1919, poked fun at the Bolshevik doctrine. The final volume was issued on the 7th of June 1919. Originally, it had been the plan to repatriate the Canadian troops directly from France, but staging camps in Britain were thought to be a better option despite their very basic conditions. It was a huge logistical challenge to repatriate, repatriate an estimated 300,000 soldiers and dependents. A reasonable assumption held by the soldiers was that there would be a first in, first out policy, with the expectation that men on the front lines and ones with the longest service would be repatriated to Canada first. As a first in, first out policy was not implemented, the scene was set for trouble as thousands of disgruntled and war-weary soldiers were still far from home. Troops began to agitate and voice dissent when they believed plans for getting them home were not being orchestrated as quickly as they anticipated. There was also the very real fear that they could succumb to the flu pandemic before getting home. In response, the military made provision for additional classes and sporting events through the KU, while soldiers still struggled against boredom and resentment. Several violent incidents erupted at demob camps. A local police sergeant died of head injuries at Epsom, and five soldiers were killed during a mutiny at Kinmel Park in North Wales. In all, there were around a dozen demob riots of varying ferocity. Repatriation of all soldiers was then set up. The Bureau of Information eased some of the anxieties regarding their future back in Canada and providing a forum through which the men were able to gain accurate information. The Canadian government was also able to use it to advise and inform returning soldiers about the help and support they would be able to claim once they were back in Canada. 
In conclusion, during repatriation, the khaki colleges were a steadying influence and helped to maintain discipline. Importantly, many men made up lost time in their education and prepared for civilian life. The 1918 Overseas Military Forces of Canada report quoted that 231,000 men attended lectures at some time and gained knowledge from almost 200,000 books and an educational pamphlets. The attendees represented over 35% of the entire CEF. Politically, it helped create awareness of Canada's greater contribution to world events and its changing status as a dominion, a dominion within the British Empire. Although there was an unsuccessful attempt to perpetuate the Khaki University in post-war Canada, the scheme was reinstated during the Second World War. After the KU was wound up, there was a leftover fund in excess of $100,000, which was distributed in equal shares to several Canadian universities. The main condition attached was that it would be converted into the Carter University and Young Men's Christian Association Memorial Scholarship Fund. Furthermore, receiving institutions were authorised to use these funds for loans to soldier students who needed money to complete their courses. The Memorial Fund continues to award bursaries to undergraduates with preference given to descendants of World War I veterans. The final YMCA accounts show it had funded the KU with a gift of $434,000 and spent a further $170,000 on other educational schemes. The YMCA also committed $1.25 million on huts, tents and equipment to improve the quality of life for all serving men. During the war years, the final accounts of the YMCA show it raised and spent just over $20 million. The KU certainly helped to regenerate a dwindling morale amongst the troops. Its evolution from Bible classes into a comprehensive education system was due to the vision of Dr. Tory, the YMCA and the chaplain service. In 2002, Tim Cook summed up the KU as follows. It kept soldiers busy with work and conscious that the army seemed to care about them and their future. The acceptance of the educational movement by senior commanders also goes some way in dispelling the simplistic image of the uncaring, blimp-like generals evoked in post-war poetry, literature and film. Canadian military, 
you've got the rank and file in the camps themselves who are probably thinking that um, it's all a fuss about. Um, they are probably, as you point out, um, much more liberated in the sense of what they can do now that they left Canada with the temperance movement. Although many of their officers were advocates of temperance, so mm -hmm. there is a, a tension there between rank and file and many of the officers who were advocates of temperance. Yeah. And it seemed to me that what was created around Hastings in 1916, they didn't learn their lessons from Salisbury Plain mm -hmm. in 1914-15, where the, the officers were very strict on temperance, had to renege on the fact of introducing a wet canteen, because if yes. they didn't, they were going to lose, lose the morale, lose discipline. Mm -hmm. So in other words, let them drink on base, yeah. but let them drink beer only. That way they won't get tempted into the stronger beers and the stronger spirits. I'm just wondering if, if this is sort of like deja vu. Yeah, it was certainly, from some of the official reports I read, sense of futility about it all, that we would really like prohibition, we would really like temperance, but there's not a lot really we can do. We're in a situation here where we don't have a car, where there's 16,000 of them, 350 of us, or 270 of us at any one time. How do we stop So there was the, that was the sense that I was getting from it. Um, but the temperance movement in Hastings wasn't really all that strong, it seemed. There wasn't really a, a way of, it didn't seem to go from nothing to something. It seemed to be something that was there, something that didn't have, really have the teeth. Um, so yeah, it was definitely that tension that you're talking about between us. What about the base commanders? Are they, are they trying to, to yes. keep the drinking down, knowing yeah. that they have a large number of very wealthy Canadians in the area that can purchase yeah. the yeah. Off the top of my head, I remember there was um, there was a request. They kept it said in the war diaries they were making requests to kind of Central Canadian Command. Can you do something about this? Of which the answer was, that's your responsibility. So there was, uh, like I say, there seemed to be lots of blame shifting of you're the one. It's their fault. They need to do something, and and it's can be. Seem to get a grip of it. Did you come across anything with regards to um, soldiers saying, "Look, we've just come out of the line after a year. Nobody knows exactly. Nobody knows at all mm. what we experienced. You know, just give us a rest." Yeah. Um, nothing along those lines. Yeah. No. The, the the kind of direct quotes I was giving were those of of uh, temperance is a good thing, or we're more uh, developed because of that. But I can definitely see how that would be a. That would be a line of, you know, Is there any movement towards temperance is undermined by the fact that you get a daily talk of one? Yeah. So, hmm. and, and this is interesting as well as what Diane was talking about, but I have done some work on the various groups that set up these soldiers' clubs. So I've done, did something on the Knights of Columbus and the Catholic Women's League that set up these kinds of clubs in order to, to draw the soldiers in, keep them out of the pubs and bring them into these usually dry or at least controlled kind of canteen environments. And there was many of those kinds of things um, within Hastings and Bexhill that, that tried to, to perform these kind of more, I suppose, philanthropic functions of uh, giving them education or allowing them that connection to home by writing letters and things like that. But it seems in Hastings, at least, it was the, the sheer number of pubs to to soldiers, kind of one, one a day, really. 
Can I ask, um, sorry, yeah. I'd like to ask Luke a question. Well, um, okay. So, I'll, I'll move over here. Oh, when we did the Shawncliffe yeah. comparison to the, um, it was um, a lot of the church leaders, um, they, they um, objected to Sunday sport yes. in Shawncliffe. Um, but the, to counter the drinking on a Sunday, they eventually had to agree that Sunday sport was very healthy mm. for the men. I didn't know if the same sort of thing happened down in, in Bexhill and Hastings. If I can just add, there was a very strong non-conformist arc of churches in Folkestone okay. that were very vocal, were constantly in the local paper there. Yeah. They swamped the Church of England. Um, not heard of it. Obviously, sport was sport was the main kind of vehicle for creating that kind of sense of togetherness. Mm. That was what it was presented as in in Bexhill that yeah. you could you would use sport as a way of building up that trust mm. between men. That if someone was going to get hit for you on the rugby field, he may take a bullet for mm. you as well. Yeah. And then we can also do sport and use the environment of Bexhill that's on the coast. Mm as a way of training for, you know, we can mm. use live rounds out to sea, throw grenades out into the sea and, mm. and that kind of thing. And, but I'm sure that Edmund Oliver fellow was in Bexhill. Yes, he was. I'm very... Yes, I'm, he was, when he met Tory there. I've well. heard the yes. name. And he was obviously, he did a lot of mm. preaching in the kind of Methodist mm. church, which is still there mm. in the centre of Bexhill today. And so I wonder whether that, that kind of mindset that you're talking mm. about was more prominent um, and had more sway mm. than, say, some of the mm. more Catholic, mm. uh, Catholic or Church of England mm. elements. Because it was mm. certainly a lot mm. more uh, commentary about what was going on in that particular church and Chaplain Edmund mm. Oliver than, than yeah. anything else. That, yeah. I think. But you didn't come across the same Sunday sport was bad. No. Um, you know, but recall. at least it would stop the soldiers drinking on a Sunday. But yeah. in, in Folkestone, it was really was it, the Sunday sport thing was pitched against um, yeah. the drinking. The one thing that I've kind of, kind of come a conclusion I've made between Bexar and Hastings was that Hastings it was obviously lots of different men from long, they, they'd been injured and they were, they were sent to the command depots. Whereas Bexhill was, they were training schools. The men were plucked from the front line or from mm -hmm. Canada because they'd shown qualities of leadership. So my sense is there wasn't the same plan, kind of disciplinary issues. There was that kind of low-level mm, okay. women and, mm. and let's have a party. Mm. But there wasn't the same kind of drunkenness, the same urinating in the street, the same kind of that kind of thing mm. going on. Because these were meant to be men who were training to be okay. leaders, mm. platoon leaders and lieutenants. Okay. Yes. Um, so that's the kind of conclusion mm. I've made. The difference yeah, between, okay. between the two towns. Mm. I enjoyed both presentations because, in essence, you wrote some imagery of a young soldier going from a military camp into the next into the large city and seeing what's around. <coughs> Myself back in the mid seventies. <clears throat> but interesting about uh, Kaki Yu, have you come across any lists of names of people who were registered and or 
or completed the courses? No, the only one we found, the only one uh, above all of these hundreds of thousands is that one that we showed, Philip Terry. That's the only certificate we've been able to find. But they didn't get that. We've not really got into looking at, at lists and that sort of thing. Just really how it worked, how it impacted, and how it essentially pumped out propaganda through the beaver in those final very critical months. Would you conclude that there are lists of students who attended those courses? I would think there has to be somewhere, probably in the LAC or somewhere. I don't know. You're shaking your head. I don't doubt it. I think these numbers, they, you know, they, the, the local people running it just yes. tell you, here, here are the numbers. Yeah. I don't think they yeah. would have had the time and effort to go, because every day it might have been different. Well, exactly, yes. I mean, yeah. Certainly if you move to the Western Front, as Diana was explaining, with them setting up, whizzing from place to place, but doing admin probably is the very last thing yeah. on their minds. Mm. Surviving would have been the first thing. And the second thing is, well, mm. where are we going next? Mm. Yeah. A lot of our information came from the YMCA official booklets that were in the um, War Museum. So that's where we got a lot of these facts and figures from, um, which were printed at the time. So. Okay. Mm. Um, thanks. Just a couple of questions, really, really on Luke's paper. One, uh, just an observation. I guess 160,000 foreign and diverted troops. It's quite a novelty. I, mean, I don't think before that of a strong thing. We've had lots of foreign armies, even friendly ones, sort of on our territory. It, it, it's, and, and I think I think I'm right in saying that that part of England wasn't used to having gar army garrisons. Maybe wrong about that, mm. but whereas other towns, you know, Colchester and Salisbury, mm. others historically mm. have an army presence, I don't think in that part of the country that has. Shorncliffe did. It, it was a garrison town from like 18 something, can't remember. 1815. Yes. Okay, honestly. Um, um, I mean, that's okay. Mm. Shorncliffe just outside of Folkestone. Right, okay. So very yeah. similar to Bexhill and Hastings, you know, oh, okay. a south coast resort town used to um, welcoming visitors. Right. Okay. Um, when the Canadians arrived in 1915 in Folkestone on their way into Shorncliffe, they doubled the size of the population. It went from 40,000 to 80,000, just like that. Mm -hmm. okay. Sorry, that leads on to something. Another question was therefore, uh, later on, you get second of all, we have status of forces act and you have established legal procedures. Now the APM reference is to Provo Marshall's office, I guess. Mm -hmm. And I just wonder what the what the legal basis was for whether it would be an understanding it sounds like it wasn't it sorted out. It seemed like there was I I haven't established what the, the official relationship between the, the, the the two jurisdictions are. Lots of them did go to the public courts where they were heard, but then some of them were, were handed back for the military to deal with. Yeah. And there, there is an interesting question there about what, who has jurisdiction and, and where's the, the legal basis for jurisdiction and, who, and what takes precedence really. Obviously something like murder, you'd expect to go to the public courts, but no, it, it did seem to be some, some and some. 
And there was certainly this context that we heard earlier that it would be a case of just slap across the wrists and let them off rather than drag them, uh, drag it on and on and on. Because the, the local newspapers then aren't what they are now. They would give a kind of running commentary of you know, this, this guy's in court, and then the next week he's still in court, and it, it would be an ongoing saga. So I, I do imagine that there would be a, a desire to, to keep things out of court. I mean, to a further extent, they'd obviously want to keep soldiers out of prison. So it's no point having yeah. soldiers in prison when they could yeah. be contributing <coughs> howsoever. So again, you'd want to whistle them through the court process, get that put behind them. As, as part of this, if I recall from military law correctly, uh, oftentimes you have an agreement between not an occupying force, mm -hmm. but a force that comes into an area and the country and the nation that they're in. And that then sets, in the same way the rules of engagement set when you shoot and when you don't, this also uh, agreement can set a framework within which mm. uh, criminal charges can be dealt with and so on. Because one of the things that you have to keep in mind, certainly in the Canadian military, I think, um, uh, certainly until the Charter Right and Freedoms came in, it was March the Guilty Bastard in Sergeant Major. If it was considered a disciplinary issue, if someone sort of broke the law, in some way, it was a disciplinary issue. It was the problem of leadership instead of a, a, a criminal offense. So it could well have been often regarded in that way as well, within that sort of March the Guilty Bastard insurgent major uh, for a summary trial before a commanding officer mm -hmm. or an office, a designated mm -hmm. officer who has the um, delegated authority. There's definitely collaboration between the two. Yeah. There's definitely interaction between local local police forces and uh, commanding officers of the of the troops. Um, I get a sneaking suspicion that if the offence happens in town, yeah, that's a civilian jurisdiction mm -hmm. because if, if locals are involved with military personnel, it goes to the justice magistrates, mm -hmm. the GPs, etc. Certainly, from what I and I'm no expert on this at all, but they just seem to be in Devon that low-level alcohol kind of stuff would be had up by the magistrates. If there's an offense on the base, on the facility, then yeah. I think military law comes into its own. Right. Civilians are not part of it. And of course, again, if you're at the fighting front, there's a different set of laws altogether, isn't there? So I, I think there, there, there's a number of levels here where you actually are absolutely right. Mm -hmm. There's a bit of give and take here. Um, yeah. And as a result, um, you'll get a lot of officers going in to either represent their privates or, or corporals um, to say that, look, Thank you very much, Your Honor. We'll deal with them back at the base. I mean, of course, field punishment is introduced to these guys, even if they were not on the front line. So they, you know, they go back to the base, and field punishment number one was given to people who really transgressed. In Folkestone, they actually set up a guard room in the town centre, where the soldiers were pulled. The military then came down from Shorncliffe Camp and marched them away and dealt with them, so they didn't clog up. The, um, the local legal system. Because it becomes embarrassing if you have all these soldiers, whether they be Canadians, South Africans, Australians, <laughs> through the magistrates. Mm -hmm. yes. It becomes embarrassing. Mm -hmm. so, well, that's, that's a good true. Well, no, but I mean, in the sense that um, if, 
you, you think of where the various Dominion forces were located, there's an impact on that local community. Yes. The yeah. population doubles overnight. It did, yes, in Folkestone, yes. Okay, we're time for just one last question or set of questions. One uh, question. From, from I wonder to what extent these two phenomena can be tied together in a causal relationship. Was there a sense that if these soldiers are in classrooms learning, they're not in pubs drinking? I think that was a major um, factor in, in because they, I mean, the war was getting old hat, they were getting bored, they were yeah. drinking, there was a lot of unsavory women flooding these areas. And I'm sure it was a huge factor. Particularly in, after mm. the armistice. Because if you remember, as Diana said, nights are long, days are short, all the traditional things of square bashing, all the other military activity, all the military learning that they've had ran down their throats for months and years have just stopped. Mm. So you've got to replace that with something you just can't leave a vacuum, which really can only encourage bad behaviour. It was very, I think, fast, you know, it was a far, very far-seeing solution that the Canadians came up with, with the Clarkie University, because I think, you know, the reports coming out of camps of drunkenness and, you know, must have been horrendous and, um, you know, it's all, I mean, they can't just blame the British way of life, but um, as you pointed out, most of them were British-born anyway. Um, but they had to replace this with something, and, you know, I think it was amazing what they did with the, with the education system. Yeah. And it was something Canada mm. led the way with. Yeah. It, it took the lead over Britain sorting out something like this. It's designed for home consumption. They're trying to get, they know these people are going home. These are the same people yes. who are at home trying to control, who see the masses mm. as a threat. Yeah. These are very conservative yeah. people, certain religious groups who are, yeah. you know, do not want these people to go back and cross country. Mm. Yeah. I'm not sure that they're all that, mm. uh, you know, yeah. really. In the Second World War, yes, yeah. the University is a very different thing. Yeah. Massively funded. Yeah. Bring in, retrain people. This is just a, yeah. a way of temporarily yeah. keeping these guys off the streets, as it were, both yes. there and at home. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting <coughs> to speculate if the war had continued for another year, with the Carnegie University only really being legitimised in August, September, 1918. It had a very short life. You know, what might it? How might it have developed in the course of another year? We never know, unfortunately. Part of the problem is you really don't know much about anybody who went to them. How it affected them. Mm. You have absolutely no real knowledge, except in a, a, mm. of these 30,000 who went to lectures. Does it have any impact on their behavior or their lives? Were they simply the same, you know, perhaps these were the ones who didn't want to get into trouble? Mm. It's possible, yes, but I think also perhaps um, if a young man just learned to read and write, very simplistic, I know I'm being here, but rather than going out and drinking, getting drunk, they would prefer then to perhaps formulate a letter to go home. I know it's a very yeah. simplistic view, but, you know... A little, well, I think, I think you're right. I think uh, where you're really able to test this out, and it's very... You can't, difficult. obviously. Well, no, you, yes. can, you can at least find some sort of benchmark yes. going through Correspondence of soldiers. Exactly. Yes. Soldiers. There isn't much. Well, no, it's growing. Um, well, on Clip, mm. which you probably used, which is that digitized letter service. There's lots of stuff. There is. Yes. 
scattered yes. across university yes. archives. Now, who's tapped into that is another matter. Uh, you're absolutely right. But come back to your point. Um, the fact is, who knows what the Kentucky University would have Absolutely right. Who would have known what the, all of the Reconstruction Committee uh, initiatives mm -hmm. that the Lord George set up mm -hmm. in 1916 with regards to mm -hmm. housing, health, welfare? Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of them were axed in mm -hmm. 19, 2021 because there was no money. So it's one of these things that are initiatives that are aspirational, but certainly in World War II, they learned the lessons. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Very no, no, it's yeah. very different. Yeah. 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 But you know, at least the foundation was made. However, um, brief. shoestring yeah. brief these things were. So I, I don't think we should underestimate the importance of making well, it's just a quick one. I just wondered in the war there was any concern about political agitation within, within troops as well, as the sense of uh, not being, not, not fighting anymore, not being sent home. With a lot of people, right? Mm. Yeah. Yes. I mean, they weren't necessarily political. But no, but I think the Canadians, Canadians sorry, the Canadians, I think, realised that there was. They were in grave danger of a lot of the troops becoming politically agitated, yeah. you know, with the um, with the news out of Russia. Yes. Um, and I think yeah, that's definitely. yes. That's a very right wing group in Canada, though. Yes. And, and here, I mean, let's not confuse them. Yeah. Now, all Canadians are even working class Canadians. I still have a feeling that when I came to these things at this time. There's a kind of self-selection process. There are men, not all the Canadian troops overseas were drinking all the time. Of course they, they were, were good, no. They were good yeah. Baptists. Yeah. And I bet you they turned up for these meetings, just like they turned up for them at all. Mm -hmm. um, but whether, um, how many people they actually attracted you know, over, mm -hmm. people who back in Canada would have yeah. gone to these things, yeah. how many of them actually went to these things is a more difficult question to answer. And I don't, I mean, that anti, Red scare yeah. stuff. I yeah. mean, that's very much in line with the right wing yeah. uh, thing in Manitoba. I mean, the, the, the whole strike there was between uh, you know, uh, mm. the, the strikers who wanted better lives, better wages, and an elite who wanted to impose a very clear mm. anti communist mm. agenda. Yeah. Well, but it was so just a potential, wasn't it? It was just the potential for problems. Yeah. That's, that's, that's all we can talk about is the potential. There was no yeah. question about that. You know. <laughs> You should have seen what he did at the University of Alberta. He set up a, basically uh, to turn out good little goods. Right thinking. I've come across a, an interesting book um, written by a fellow who did exactly that in the bunk camps in the forestry camps of Ontario uh, and Quebec. And he went on to be in charge of Frontier College. But Brad, Bradness or something yeah. like that. And he wrote a, a very interesting uh, book about, because he was actually out in the camps mm, yes. and had these guys construct these little schools, houses, and he would mm. give them lessons in mm. arithmetic, grammar, mm. and so mm. on, uh, recognizing that many of them mm. were Ukrainians, Italians, Greeks, Poles, blah, 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 mm. blah, blah, blah. Frontier and, yeah, Frontier yeah. And, and I'm just wondering how much of that may have sort of influenced Kakiyu, what happened with the Y. Because, again, the Y had established in the Canadian internment camps. Um, 
classes. Yeah. And, uh, and those appear in the American Consulate, yeah. Consular Officer Reports, about how many classes. I think in Amherst we had like 800 uh, mm -hmm. POWs and about half of the taking courses. Mm -hmm. yeah. They're major in every Canadian city. Yeah. Branches of yeah. mm -hmm. these things. What are they preaching? Temperance, obedience to the law and order. I mean, they're essentially, um, you, know, mm. you know, designed uh, to uh, put down what they see as the radical, dangerous radicals out there in the working mm -hmm. class. Okay, on that note. <laughs> 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 But let me thank all of our presenters and also all of you for your very good questions, as always. Uh, and I'll end the day finished. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much.